I don't know if JavaScript was ever intended to be this sort of complicated application <laughs> running thing. It was never meant to be this important. It's going beyond our control. <laughs> All right, everybody. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast, home team edition. I am Ben Popper, director of content here at Stack Overflow, joined today by some wonderful co-hosts. Why don't y'all go around the horn and introduce yourself counterclockwise? Do you see me in the top left of the video? I don't. I see you in the bottom left. Okay. I see you in the top right. We're already in trouble. Oh, boy. All right, Cassidy, you go first and we'll pass the hat. Sure. Hello, everybody. My name is Cassidy Williams, and I'm a... What am I? I'm a person. Director of Developer Experience at Netlify. Yeah. (laughs) Good morning. I'm Ryan Donovan. I'm a content marketer and editor of the Stack Overflow blog. Well, everybody, thank you for coming on the show. We're trying out some new technology, Riverside FM, so we'll see how the recording sounds in the end. And today, we brought a couple of ideas, things to chat about. I will start with a link that Ryan shared, which is about... DNS traffic and surveillance. So Ryan, just give us the broad strokes here for people who are not super familiar. What is DNS and why should I care if people can see what I do over that? Sure. DNS is a internet backbone server thing that anytime you go to a website, you type in www.example.com, your DNS server will come back and tell you what the IP address is of example.com. Most people use a DNS server from their ISP. So your ISP will see every single website that you go to. And the article is saying that- But wait, not if I'm in incognito mode. No, no, it does. Oh. Your DNS server knows everything. You can can change your DNS server to the Google one, but then Google knows everything you do. Okay. Cloudflare has one. I could then Cloudflare knows everything I do. Sure, sure. But uh, this article was talking about how apps are getting more paranoid and are starting to use encrypted DNS and this Oblivion DNS server, which I didn't quite understand. But the extent of it is that they are going to hide their DNS traffic. A series of complicated pipes and encryptions. Cassidy, would you trust a service called Oblivion? Does that feel like anarcho-punk, a good fit for you? I definitely thought that it sounded like my note-taking software Obsidian, and so yeah, sure. Keep it all. Keep it all in the Word family. Yeah, yeah. Ryan, I think we might be covered because I turn on the Stack Overflow suggested VPN every day, so I can connect to a bunch of different work things. And I think that also has like an encrypted tunnel. I don't know. Do you think that helps with DNS or not? I'm not sure that that encrypts the DNS server. You still have a DNS server to get mm. to whatever your you're hitting. Right, I think right. it just protects the traffic between two IP addresses. Cassidy, on a scale of like one to 10, how much do you care about this? Because I know typically people who work with code are much more sensitive to privacy and identity than normies like me. I care. The problem is, though, is that I don't fully understand all of it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I try to add my own protections here and there. Like right. sometimes we'll use a VPN or sometimes we'll use I'll use a password manager for most things and stuff. But besides that, I don't really know how to set up some of this stuff. And and it's mostly just because I've never really tried. Yeah. I mean, I know how to change a DNS server. I know the, the address of the Google DNS server. But another thing that sort of 
blew me away on this is that the Facebook app is a pretty big app. It's about 200 megabytes because it includes an entire networking stack. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's avoiding the entire phone networking stack. And they're saying like, you know, in the future data is so valuable that they're not going to give it away. Yeah, it has been really interesting to see the turf wars already emerging between mm-hmm. hardware providers like Apple and software providers like Facebook and Google and, you know, sort of skirmishing over who's going to own data and to what degree are we protecting consumer privacy, offering that as sort of like almost like a, one of our services, one of our values versus, you know, oh, well, you know, who's really protecting the consumer and who's really just trying to write sort of exactly monopolize the data for themselves in their own ecosystem. Cassidy, I know you had been mentioning yesterday, you wanted to chat a little bit about the recent Apple event. What, is there anything you saw last week that you thought was interesting? Well, speaking of Apple, (laughs) Apple event happened last week. And it's curious. I'm very excited about the cinema mode on iPhone that's coming out. That seems like it's going to be pretty cool where you can kind of change the focus actively, dynamically while as you shoot video and stuff. And you can also do it after the fact. And what was kind of wild is way back in, I think it was 2012, I entered this contest thing for, for a scholarship to talk about what technology will be available in the future. And Mm. that is an exact thing I talked about, being able to change focus in a single shot. And and so the fact that it's real, I was like, oh my gosh, it only took nine years, but it happened. What was that? There was like a standalone camera. It was like big on Kickstarter, just big, remember? And it lets you do that trick of like recording and then shifting between focus. I remember it was like people were blown. I have to look it up. But at the time, it was kind of seen as like a a real breakthrough. It didn't end up working. It was like you kind of held it like a GoPro or a like a flip. Remember flip cam? It was like that, but it had depth of field, like depth of field for focus. It was recording at multiple depths of field at once. And then later, right, you could go in and select like you're focused on the kid in the front, but actually I wanted to look at the horse in the back or and kind of stitch two photos together. Yeah. I wonder how, did, did they explain how Apple does that all on a phone? I assume that it's similar to how they do portrait mode. Cause like with portrait mode, you can change the lighting after the fact and, and you can, I don't even know what it's called. So you can, you can adjust some kind of focus level in portrait mode. And so all I can assume is that they're doing the exact same thing, but for video and it seems more complicated. <laughs> yeah, it was called the Lytro, and the technology is called like I a light a light field that. camera. Yeah, the Lytro was like a little box, and it was like a it was the first kind of like standalone handheld light field camera. Which prior to that was something you had like in a studio or a, or a science lab or something like that. Yeah, wow, yeah. memories, good times. But that's so amazing. Yeah, it's like all you know these things that at that time I forget what it was, but it was very expensive. You know, for this little handheld box, it could only do that one trick, and now Apple's just like, yeah, we just do that on the new iPhone. You know, it's no big deal. Yeah. NVD. They also released the new Apple Watch, which I don't have one of those, but Mm. they kept talking about fall detection. I was like, you know, I'm a klutz. This could be great. (laughs) But I would be constantly just telling my watch I'm okay. This is just who I am. They also released the new iPad mini, which I think looks really, really cool because it works with the Apple Pencil and and pretty colors, you know, all that jazz. I'm firmly in the Apple ecosystem. I have MacBook, iPhones, iPads. We don't have the watch yet. Maybe... Oh, Apple TV. So I'm pretty ensconced in their ecosystem. But then ironically, all the apps on my home screen are Google apps. It's like the whole G Suite is the home screen and Apple is all the hardware. What about you, Ryan? What do you, you you have a Windows machine, don't you? Oh yeah, I got a Windows desktop. I'm kind of a anti-Apple fanboy. You know, Apple kind of feels like a cult to me. 
they're shiny, they're polished, they're super expensive, they're a closed ecosystem. Yeah. Now I have a desktop here with the, the side panel still open. <laughs> I want to be able to access it at any point and right. knock the dust off my uh, graphics card. Yeah. If you're capable of doing that stuff, like it's kind of like if you're if you're the kind of person who could tune their own machine, then I think it's good. The reason I, I really don't like Windows is because older people in my family or friends are always getting Windows machines. And then after like a year, they're so kludgy. They're running like molasses because they've accidentally mm. downloaded a million things that open and start. And uh. I just find if I say like, get a Mac next time, you know, that that happens so much less frequently. Like it's just the closed ecosystem kind of protects people often. from. Yeah, it's it's a, you know, a safety versus freedom issue. Yeah, I have my foot in both worlds where I use my desktop PC for all my personal things. And I have a, a Mac for work and mm. I have an iPad and an iPhone, but I also test a lot of things on an Android phone. Right. And so I touch all the things. And I do think the power in Apple is its ecosystem because of mm-hmm. the apps that just work on Apple and, and yeah. the very clear design system and stuff. But I do like that freedom of Windows. Is that a, a big change, Cassidy? Like 10 years ago, would it have been odd to say, oh yeah, you know, I do most of my programming on Mac and I do my personal stuff on Windows. Like I feel like it would have been reversed. Like it was much more frequent. Yeah. That Windows was where you spent uh, your time coding and Mac was like for personal or artistic reasons. Kind of depends on who you talk to yeah. because Mac has always had, it's, it's basically Mac OS is on top of Linux. And so mm-hmm. you could do a lot of, a lot of That's those nice That's fairly commands. recent. I mean, mm-hmm. within the last 10 or so years. Okay. I mean, right. Once it switched to that, I think a lot of uh, development moved to to the Linux-based Mac. Yeah. Exactly. But now that Windows has added WSL, the, the Windows subsystem for Linux, I think a lot of devs went back. They're just like, oh, great. And I know, like, for example, my husband, he works at Microsoft, and, and he got a new work PC, and it just has so many ports like I, I wish, I wish my Mac had that where he's just like, oh, it's easy. I don't need a dongle to add an HDMI cord, and yeah. and I shed a tear as we watched Netflix. I, f- I feel like Macs have been uh, externalizing all their ports. Like you need a USB hub to do anything. Yeah, right now I'm looking at my setup, and and I have a dongle and a gigantic hub that holds everything. The only things plugged into my Mac are the hubs and the dongles. I mean, if you have a laptop, I feel like at that point, you might as well just get a desktop. It's true. Well, and and granted, I'm a snob. And so like, I always want to use a mechanical keyboard and like Mm, my external mouse. And I have like a DAC amp for my headphones (laughs) and uh, all of those things. Is there a word that means like keyboard snob? Like, is there something that's specific that people use for that? Or like a super keyboard fan? I think that's it. Keyboard snob, typewriter. Ooh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but clacker. Yeah. So anyway, when I'm at my desk, I'm a snob and use all of these accessories. But otherwise, right. it's decent when I'm on the couch. I know somebody who just bought one of the Macs, you know, where it's just like a little box, like it doesn't come, you know, in the screen or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that if you do it that way, you actually get a lot of bang for your buck. It's like 700 bucks, but it's super powerful. And then, you know, you got to bring your own peripherals, but you can do that quite cheaply if you want to. Again, it's a little more difficult to set up and configure. You might run into some issues, but if you're willing to do a little bit of work at the beginning, that's a great way to get into the Apple ecosystem without sort of overpaying for what you're getting. Yeah. I'm very curious about the new Mac Pros or or MacBook Pros that are coming out supposedly this fall. We'll see. The rumors are saying that they're adding ports back, which will be very exciting. (laughs) We'll we'll see if that's actually true. The return of the port. Oh my gosh. I know. I'm mostly looking forward to the fact that it's going to be like those M1 or M2s or whatever right. chips. Did Joni Ive leave? How could they add the ports no. back? I thought he just wanted to make it a solid pane of glass. 
Yeah, as as soon as it runs out of battery, you just buy a new one. You just buy a new one. I, I feel like they, they removed the ports just so they had new features for the next release. Hmm. Yeah, it's ugh, <laughs> don't like it. But right now, like the, the M1 MacBook Airs and stuff, those only can support one monitor. Yeah. And so I'm not going to get one of those because I got my two monitor set up. I just I told you about all my dongles. I got a dongle um, on here for the USB-C. So I got some SD card, regular USB port, right. HDMI, all that jazz. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So that way, if I decide to get one of those computers, we'll see. Right. I, I could actually use all of the Think of the dongle industry, desk. Cassidy. What, what damage will this do to the <laughs> dongle industry? Yeah. Side note, I feel like dongle was one of those words that somebody was like, oh, what is that? The whatchamacallit? The dongle over there. Yeah. That just stuck. Yeah. The thingamajig. Everyone the just rolled with it. Yeah. All right. Well, now we have to look that up and see if there's like a very serious technical explanation for the word dongle. Can you yeah. enter that into Stack Exchange while we're talking? Okay, so I had one uh, to bring to the table, a little link. I don't know if you all had a chance to read this, but it was at the top of Hacker News earlier this week. It's called Building Apps in Minutes, Not Months, and it's lab notes from somebody named Alexander Aubinois, who works for like an indie sort of future of software. It's a framework made up of interface components built in React, and the magic is that each one has its own little item ID, and it automatically sort of syncs between them, pipes the data around between these building blocks. So for me, this is always the dream, like just give me that drag and drop IDE where I can create, you know, a single page app that works really well. I can go in and mess with sort of the configuration of the, you know, the, the business logic pretty easily. And then the real dream is like, okay, now can I take that same basic idea and like hit a few buttons or go through a few permutations and then offer it up, you know, as a, as a mobile app as well. So I was pretty interested by this as somebody who struggles to, to code. Did either of you have a chance to read this or have some thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I, I looked at it. It looked very interesting. It looked like it was a lot of built out stuff on it, but I'm not sure what the difference between this and, and like a Squarespace or something besides this has a less user-friendly interface. There's this whole no code movement for making yeah. all of these different apps and stuff. And and in my brief glance over this, it, it looks like a lot of the other no code apps out there. And, and so I think the most popular one is Webflow where you can add all of these smarter components than just kind of a typical something like Squarespace or, or right. Wix or something where you drag and drop things. There, I've seen like, I think Flutter Wave or Fl Flutter Flow is one mm. of them. Bubble yeah. is one of them. Glide, I think, is one of them. There's all of these different no-code options for, for building apps. And what's interesting is with this whole no-code movement, it's cool to see the accessibility of a lot of these different things. But I admit when I have played around with them as a developer myself, yeah, it works really well until you want to customize it yourself. And then right. you have to deal with the code that it generates to actually mess with it. And, and that's where right. it can start to get fairly hairy. Can you open up the hood and then try to poke around? But like, I guess just, yeah, the way it's built, you know, so you can connect the blocks as soon as you start to mess with it, it kind of confuses the system. It depends on which one you use. There's so many of them. I, I know, like, for example, I think there's one called Plasmic, where that one, it <laughs> purposely tries to make very specifically readable and, and editable React components. Yeah. Um, and so when I was talking with them, they they were aware of that problem of people wanting to edit it and it becomes a pain. Right. And, and I played around with one called Blocks, where I could edit it, but once I did just it started to get hairier and hairier over right. time. And so it, it definitely, it, it varies from, from app to app. I do think that we're kind of in the, 
baby years still of this whole no-code movement, but yeah. the accessibility that it brings for building applications, I think, is really exciting. Yeah, I, I think so many of these low-code, no-code things are kind of trying to solve the problems that JavaScript has developed over the years with like all the data piping, all the state storage, just like things that feel like workarounds on a like, I don't know. I don't know if JavaScript was ever intended to be this sort of complicated application <laughs> running thing. It was never meant to be this important. <laughs> <laughs> it grew right. beyond our control. Right. I mean, yeah. maybe these are all the uh, the RPG makers of uh, of web design. Right. That's like the aliens like travel into the future after they build. And they're like, what JavaScript is for every, like everybody's using JavaScript. This is insane. <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah. so many other options. Don't they know uh, about the Great War? <laughs> All right. uh, So a few items here that are a little bit less related to the specifics of software and a little bit more about just work and life. Cassidy, you shared a link. The title is Productivity Versus Guilt and Self-Loathing. So this seems like a nice light one for us to end the episode on. (laughs) You want (laughs) to take us... Guilt and self-loathing. Yeah. You want to take us uh, through the sort of like big idea here? The post that that I shared, that it's actually a pretty old post. I think it's from like 2012 or something. Yes. Mm -hmm. But... I think especially in the pandemic, people have been facing this where because you're home, you just keep working yeah. and, and we get right. kind of addicted to this productivity because it's doing something while you're stuck at home. And then when you're not doing anything, you end up feeling guilty about it. It's hard to actually rest and kind of rejuvenate your mind by yeah. doing nothing because you're stuck in this. And and so the title alone, yes, the the rest of the article, but the title alone felt like something that quite a few of us are facing right now uh, with the way we're, we've been treating work. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely know some people like that during the pandemic. It's hard to see or to actually not see other people working and living their lives. Like during the pandemic, we got so disconnected from everybody else that we don't actually know how people are working. Right. We just sort of see people's, you know, Slack notification and, and assume that they're working go like, Oh, geez. I got to say, yeah, I um, joined a co-working space locally. And so then I started, you know, trying to leave the house around nine and then trying to get back to the house around five. And that was a nice way to sort of like isolate work time and workspace, you know, like mm-hmm. hard, really hard for me is, yeah, I'm working from my bedroom and my kitchen. Like then at night, if my computer is open, neither of those spaces, like the habit is just to open email and check it one more time or like to, you know, look at the Slack notification or whatever. So for me, that sort of like even it's like a 12 minute commute, but that, that was kind of helpful to put up some boundaries. And I had more of that in earlier pre pandemic because I I've been working remotely for a few years now, not just in this time period. And because you couldn't go to co-working spaces or the library or the cafes mm-hmm. and stuff, those lines blurred a ton where working remotely now versus working remotely before is very, very different because right. I, was able to be social after work. I was able to have that kind of disconnection stuff, but it's hard to be disconnected when you're just stuck. You need that uh, commute. It reminds me a little bit of a something I read about World War II and and PTSD. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm going to get there because the uh, the trip back to America was so long. It was this this boat ride that took you know a month. They had time to unpack, mm. and I think. For those of us at work, it's not, you know, it's not PTSD, but there is no time to unpack. There's no commute, you know, sitting down and reading a book and being mad, thinking about the the person playing their music on the other seat and wondering what's for dinner. 
there's definitely a hard transition to make for me when it's like I'm working right up till five and then my kids like come crashing in and it's like all this, you know, like you're still like struggling to send the last email, but they're like pulling you away. Although right. I will say neat life hack if you want to not work between, you know, like 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. or on the weekends, just have kids. And then <laughs> by the time Easy. they turn seven or eight, they literally will not let you use that time for anything but playing with them. So simple. Life hacks. Yeah. All right. I had one more, which I don't know if it relates to this, but I've had sort of like some kind of like. I wouldn't say it's an epiphany, but some sort of like mental shift, emotional shift or something where I realized that after like seven years of playing Hearthstone almost every single day and a lot and on the weekends, I just like stopped completely without even like thinking about it, just like stopped. Mm -hmm. And then I also realized that I, yeah, like I basically stopped using Twitter as well, that I was feeling a lot better, like that it was actually great in terms Mm -hmm. of like, just like my mental health. I don't really know why that happened. I was speculating it's because I now I'm a homeowner. So like a lot of time now mm. I spend like thinking about my house. Can I fix it up? Can I work on it? I'm like outside doing stuff. It's more like I'm like, not like to be cheesy about it, but I'm like here now or whatever versus, you know, like it caught up in sort of like the meta space of whatever, you know, tech I was using. I guess like, do, do you feel like, yeah, the, the pandemic and the remote stuff, we were just talking sort of about, about like what it, what it's like for work. Has that changed your relationship with some of these other kind of like forms of entertainment and screen time, whether that be like video games or social media? I definitely use social media less. Like mm. I, I still use Twitter just because I like Twitter. But <laughs> Instagram, I pretty much never use. Twitter yeah. or, or Facebook, I almost never use. I only use Snapchat if I'm talking to my cousins, mm. which it's, yeah, it's just where our group chat is. Yeah, And so it has changed a little bit, mostly because I don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I was ahead of the game, man. I stopped using all those years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I I still post on uh, Facebook once in a while if I have good jokes, something pithy. One thing that Um, I do occasionally dip into Facebook for is Facebook Marketplace. Man, I don't know what it's like where y'all are, but I can put anything on there and within five minutes have like six inbounds to be like, I will come get that. I will will pick that up. Like I'll get it right Mm -hmm. now. And people actually get really angry. Like if you don't respond within the first 15 minutes, they're like, wow, ghost to me. Okay, cool. I guess you don't want me to have, it's like, whoa, whoa. Like, <laughs> Calm down, man. Be open. cool. Jeez. Yeah, be cool. <laughs> Everybody, thank you so much as always for tuning in and uh, listening to the episode. I'm going to try something new. I, I used to always read a lifeboat badge at the end of the episode but I've decided that it's, it might actually be more interesting to go to the sort of like hot network questions. And that's where um, there's just a, a bunch of questions from all these different stack exchanges, the stuff that's getting, uh, you know, like a lot of a lot of interest over the last couple of weeks. And Ryan and I work on like a little project called Stack Overflow Knows, where we try to find interesting questions and throw those into the newsletter and share them on social media. So this is my favorite from this week. It says, if my electronic devices are searched, can a police officer use my ideas? On my phone, I have many different ideas for startups, books, and other creative endeavors. So that's a pretty good one. The answer is also pretty good, which is to say, no, you can't uh, like copyright ideas. So if you've got a great idea for a novel or a startup, don't give the officer your phone. Yeah. Encrypt it. Encrypt it. <laughs> All right, everybody. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can email us podcast at stackoverflow.com. And if you like the show, leave a rating and a review. It really helps. Uh, We may be 
Now that we're using Riverside FM, sharing this also as a video on YouTube. So if you're interested in consuming the podcast as a video, send us an email and let us know. All right. I'm uh, Ryan Donovan. I'm on Twitter at rthordonovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog, uh, you can email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com. No tutorials, though. Great no ideas. Tutorials. No tutorials. My name is Cassidy Williams. I'm Director of Developer Experience at Netlify. You can find me at Cassidoo, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O, on most things. Wonderful. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll Bye. talk to you soon. Bye.